Now I know what you're thinking. Uh, who is this handsome stranger filling our pulpit? Uh, I appreciate you letting me kind of be out of the pulpit for the last few weeks as we've had different missionaries and speakers come. It's been uh, refreshing to me to have some time to focus on some vision aspects and some different things happening around here. And I hope that you were blessed by uh, their words and encouraged by uh, their stories and what they had to share. So I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, that being said, kids, at this time you're dismissed to kick. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. As you turn there, I wanted to pose to you a question. Uh, if you could have, uh, if you could eat any food uh, as much as you wanted, and no matter how much you consumed, it would always be zero calories, what food would you choose? I'll give you a second to kind of dial that in, lock that in, uh, because undoubtedly it's, it's probably some kind of junk food. Maybe you have a, a sweet tooth that's candy or ice cream. Maybe uh, for you it's all about the carbs and you like the french fries and the things like that. For me, uh, it would undoubtedly be chips. It doesn't really matter what kind of chips, uh, barbecue, sour cream and onion, uh, cheddar and sour cream, any chip, I'm just, uh, you know, I love chips. But the problem is with chips is that you never feel good about eating them. Nobody uh, ever eats an entire bag of chips and says, man, I just feel like a winner right now. Uh, but So when it comes to, to eating chips or, or any junk food, whatever your food is, uh, even when something tastes so good, uh, in the end, it can make you feel horrible. We're, beginning, or we're continuing our series that we began at the beginning of the summer, uh, our series Christian Atheist. Uh, you might remember, if you haven't been here yet, uh, kind of recap for this. This series is based on a book uh, written by a pastor by the name of Craig Groeschel. And the tagline of the book is, When you believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. An atheist is, of course, someone who doesn't believe in God, and so uh, their lives don't follow what God commands of them. They, they don't uh, ascribe any, any relationship to Him. And so a Christian atheist might believe in God, might acknowledge His existence, or even have somewhat of a relationship. But the, for all intents and purposes, uh, comes to the same conclusion. That they live their lives much in the same way as atheists, as if God doesn't exist. And as we've gone through this series, we've looked at a number of topics so far. Uh, when you believe in God but don't know Him. When you believe in God but are ashamed of your past. When you believe in God but still worry all the time. When you believe in God but don't think He's fair. And this morning, the topic I want to look at is when you believe in God but pursue happiness at any cost. Most of these topics that we've looked at so far, uh, you can understand why they might be a barrier to your relationship with God. If you don't really know Him, obviously you don't have a strong relationship with Him. If you are ashamed of your past, you don't trust His ability to forgive. If you still worry all the time, you don't trust in His ability to provide. The list could go on and on. But when we talk about something like happiness, it at first doesn't seem really antithetical or opposite to what God would want from us. I mean, surely God wants us to be happy. Our own Declaration of Independence as a country, the document that we wrote declaring that we are our own nation, uh, says in there, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the problem with the pursuit of happiness 
is that it often leaves us similar to how I feel after eating chips. You would think that this constant pursuit, this constant consumption of things that we like, things that we think would make us feel good or make us happy, uh, sometimes make us feel in the end worse. Even when something tastes so good, even when something feels so good, it can make you feel horrible in the end. Much of what we do, though, is driven by this desire, this undercurrent of pursuing happiness. That if we just had a better job, or if we just found the right spouse, or if we just had more money, if we could just lose the extra weight, if we just had more friendships, then our lives would be better, then we would be happy. And we've all experienced the letdown that comes when we eventually get these things that we desire so much, these things that we pursue. Uh, And we get these things and and we think will make us happy. And for a little while they do. For a little while there's that happiness high and then it fades and we go on to getting our next fix. You see, there's a huge market for happiness uh, in our country, in our society. If you just type the word happy on Amazon, you'll find over 50,000 books that have happy in the title. And so we tend to think that if we want something, then surely God must want that for us too. That our pursuit of happiness is God's chief aim for His creation. But this morning what I hope we realize is that it's not that God wants us to be unhappy, but rather that God's definition of happiness might not be the same definition that we have for happiness. Now, I'm not contending that God wants us to live in a miserable existence. I mean, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in our lives is joy. God wants us to to be joyful and to be content, and, and yes, even at times to be happy, as long as our happiness aligns with His definition of happiness. You might be surprised by some of the things that the Bible has to say about true happiness. Job 5 says, Happy is the one the Lord corrects. Proverbs 14 says, Happy is the one who has mercy on the poor. Proverbs 29, Happy is the one who keeps the law. Peter says, Happy is the one who suffers for righteousness' sake. And even Jesus chimes in on what real happiness looks like in God's economy. But it doesn't sound anything like we might expect. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is beginning what we call uh, the Sermon on the Mount, kind of this this kingdom manifesto. Jesus is using these three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to say this is what life should look like in my kingdom. But clearly, as Jesus begins this uh, campaign speech, in a sense, uh, he's not really familiar with what political science says about these things. If he were anything like today's politicians, he would know that you have to promise the moon. You have to promise to make everything better and safer and freer and happier. But when Jesus begins to unleash his great kingdom mission statement, maybe the reaction at first is to think that he picked up the wrong speech notes or the teleprompter is on the fritz because how he defines happiness doesn't sound right at all. Jesus will give, in the beginning of this sermon, uh, eight beatitudes, or eight blessings. Many of you probably are familiar with some of these. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus gives eight of these different areas. And for us, blessing, blessing is kind of an empty word. 
It's something we say, but it doesn't carry a lot of weight. If someone sneezes, we might say, God bless you. Or maybe have a placard in our laundry rooms that say, you know, bless this mess. Uh, Or if you're Southern, you say, well, bless your heart. Uh, But blessing doesn't really have a lot of weight to it. But the reason that we find Jesus' words so applicable uh, in this passage about pursuing happiness is that this word translated blessing uh, could also carry a different sense. could carry the sense of fortunate or congratulations to or, yes, even happy. And so as we read these verses this morning, I want to uh, hope that you'll afford me a little license uh, to change our typical translation just on this word uh, blessing to maybe use a different sense of what it might mean, uh, how Jesus might have said it. And so please read with me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Jesus said, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For the crowds gathering around Jesus at the beginning of this great kingdom, Jesus' words are disappointing, to say the least. And not just for the crowds, but probably for us as well. Because what Jesus is saying here is that his definition of happiness, happiness in his kingdom, stands in stark contrast, stark contradiction to the world's concept of happiness and success. The world says happy are the proud, happy are the the financially secure, happy are the ones who fight it to the the top, happy are are those who, who don't take nothing from nobody. In the world's system, These are the people to be congratulated, possibly even envied. And the reason is because uh, we think that they have what it takes. In the world's system, the people who are poor and persecuted and mourning and meek, to the world, they are the unfortunate ones, the losers, the wimps. Jesus is saying, happy are the losers. But according to Jesus and not the world, it's these second group of people that are actually meant to be congratulated and possibly even envied. Because the reason is they demonstrate what it means to have a happy heart before God. Uh, I'm learning uh, as a parent that the terrible twos can be a real thing uh, at times. Uh, Some friends of ours just had a baby, and my friend said, I I just look at him and I think, there's nothing that he could ever do wrong. And I say, yeah, I remember feeling the same way, it'll pass. Uh, But we do something with Chandler to to try to redirect him and and help him to learn obedience. We have a phrase, uh, to obey all the way, the right way, with a happy heart. All the way, doing things 100%, the the right way, doing things as we ask, with a happy heart, that our attitude matters in how we obey. And so we, we find in this passage that Jesus is teaching us what it means to have a happy heart even when things don't go our way. And we find in this that true happiness 
is when the beat of our heart echoes the heart of God. I'll say that again. True happiness, we find true happiness when the beat of our heart echoes the heartbeat of God. And so the reason that Jesus can describe these eight positions as blessed or happy or fortunate is because they demonstrate the condition of our hearts. And so I want to look at three things in this passage about our hearts and how we can find happiness when, we are, when our hearts are in the right place. Now, first, Jesus tells us that we find happiness when we recognize our brokenness. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5 is, is much the same sentiment, blessed or, or happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And this would have been just as countercultural in Jesus' day uh, as it is in ours. Luke 14 uh, says it a different way. He just says, blessed are the poor. And you think, blessed are the poor. If they were blessed, they wouldn't be poor. I mean, doesn't this guy know that riches are the sign of God's blessing? You know, and, and meek, people who, who submit themselves to, to others rather than getting while the getting's good, how, how can they be happy? How can they be blessed? And maybe you think, well, that's not right, and it's not. Uh, maybe you think, well, nobody, nobody feels that way. You know, I certainly don't. But when's the last time you saw a homeless guy and thought, man, that guy has got the life. He has, he has made it in this world. Craig Rochelle, writing this chapter, says, Our actions confirm that a disturbing number of us truly believe this equation. Better possessions plus peaceful circumstances plus the right relationships plus the perfect appearance equals happiness. But history is filled with people who supposedly had it all, but eventually find themselves incredibly unhappy. Six weeks before he died, uh, a reporter asked Elvis Presley, Elvis, when you were young, when you started out as a teenager, you said, I want three things. I want to be rich, I want to be famous, and I want to be happy. Now at 42 years of age, you're rich and you're famous, but are you happy? To which Elvis replied, no, I am not happy. I am lonely as hell. Many who we, a man who many of us would describe as the peak of, of fame, who had it all, Elvis, the king of rock and roll, found himself at the end of his life incredibly lonely and unhappy. Jesus says it is the poor who are happy because most of the time they have a closer relationship with God. God has always had a special place for the poor. And I think the reason is, you know, think about what you do when you're hungry or when you need something. You go to the fridge, you go to the cabinet, you go to the store that's a block away, and you get what you need. But for a person who's poor, they have to rely on God to provide. God has always had a special place for the poor because the poor have always had a special place for God. Poverty shows us our need for help outside ourselves. And so in much in the same way to recognize the poverty of our own spirit, uh, our, our, the, the poorness of our spiritual bankruptcy, is to recognize that we have a need that can only be filled by trusting in God to meet it. The New English Bible says it this way, How blessed are those who know their need for God. We see when we recognize our brokenness, we recognize that we are wholly dependent on God to fix what is messed up within us. And that's why Jesus continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
It's the kind of phrase that people kind of take out of context and might put in a, in a sympathy card. But Jesus isn't just talking about your everyday sadness. He's talking about those who mourn over their own brokenness of their spirit, their own brokenness in their lives, the sin in their lives. When is the last time that we mourned or, or wept or were broken at our own propensity to do evil? When was the last time that we mourned our ability to tear someone down with our words or, or to write someone off as a nobody or to be greedy rather than generous, to seek only to satisfy our own desires at the expense of another? When was the last time we were grieved by a world that had gone wrong and by our own part in what we've played and it going off the rails? If you're like me, the answer to those questions is probably not often enough. But the point of the Beatitudes is not simply to convince us of how broken we are, but rather to convince us of how blessed or happy we can be. Because Jesus attaches promises to these. And it's in this that we find, uh, that we see we find happiness when we repent of our failures. We find happiness when we recognize our brokenness, but then one step further, we find happiness when we repent of our failures. And this is often where people get stuck or lost, is in that line between recognition and repentance. Because it's one thing to recognize a problem, but it's another thing entirely to want to do something to change it. Again, realizing this uh, as a parent, this is something that starts in us uh, at a really young age. You know, this, this wonderful two-year-old stage in parenthood that we're at uh, is what, where one channel will do something that he knows is clearly wrong. And he'll say, I saw we... But then, of course, it's not too long later, and he does the exact same thing. I think many of us think repentance is just being sorry. But repentance isn't being sorry for something you did. It means you're sorry enough to quit. And the point that Jesus is making is not to make you feel like something disgusting that somebody stepped in, but rather to remind us that happiness comes from living life his way. To mourn over our sin is to express a sorrow that leads us to stop sinning. The happiness that Jesus gives to those who mourn is the comfort and forgiveness of a loving God. It is to be a people who, as Jesus continues in verse 6, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have this insatiable desire to see things put right, especially things that we need to put right in our own lives. To crave the life that Jesus calls us to is to live to see his kingdom rule in this world. It's to want to what God wants. And to have this insatiable hunger for the world to be made right through him. And so what Jesus is telling us is that we, if we live our lives this way, if we recognize our brokenness, and in that recognition, care enough to fix it, to want to, to repent of it, to turn it over to him, to do a work in our lives, and inevitably what will happen is the third thing that we find happiness in. We find happiness when we resemble Jesus. When we recognize our brokenness and we repent of our failures and we turn it over to Him, invariably what should happen within us is that we begin to resemble Jesus. Tell me if this sounds like Jesus to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus came to exemplify and extend to us grace and mercy. 
and when we recognize the need that we have for forgiveness and what we've received in forgiveness, then we likewise can become people who learn and know what it means to forgive. Mercy looks to the good of others when they have done nothing to earn it and everything to lose it. Jesus came to exemplify and extend to us purity. Psalm 24 tells us that in order to experience God, to know God, to be in His presence, we must be pure. It says, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. But so often we're like that young kid who comes out of the bathroom and is asked that age-old momism, did you wash your hands? Well, I washed them enough, splashed some water, got a good soap on there for 2.5 seconds, I think they're clean. When in reality, Jesus is the only one who can purify us, who makes us pure through his sacrifice. We see lastly that Jesus came to exemplify and extend peace. And peace doesn't always mean the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean an easy life. But peace is the promise of restoration. That Jesus made the bridge. Jesus restored humanity to God. And Jew to Gentile and man to woman. And those who are disconnected back to one another. And it's the primary ministry that he left to us as well. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, the message of restoration. So when we extend mercy instead of revenge, or when we convey purity instead of worldliness, and when we make peace, not simply by avoiding conflict, but by actively working to restore broken relationships, we find happiness because we find Jesus. But of course, there's one more aspect of this sermon that sounds a lot like Jesus. It says, blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he promises us the same. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus tells us that we are blessed when we're persecuted. Not because it's a sign that we've done what's wrong, but often because it's a sign that we're doing what's right. Jesus never promises that life with him will be easy or that the happiness we find in him will always be pleasurable. Jesus was likewise persecuted. Jesus was killed, was executed, because the heartbeat of his life echoed the heartbeat of his Father. But in him we find a contentment that is independent of the conflict or trials we might face. In the closing of this chapter, uh, when you believe in God but pursue happiness at any cost, uh, Craig Rochelle offers the illustration of a fish out of water. He says there's this fish lying on the hot sand of the beach, gasping for breath. Uh, Would you describe that fish as happy? Probably not. So, so, okay, let's try to make this fish happy. He's gasping, dying, just craving air beyond anything. Let's give him $100,000. Is he happy? Probably not. What if we give give him other other ladyfish? 
pretty ladyfish who will satisfy all of his desires as he's gasping for air. Is he happy? Still no. What if we build this nice big sandcastle around him to, to shelter in the biggest, nicest sandcastle on the beach? Still he'll be unhappy. You see, a fish lying on the beach gasping for air will never be happy there because that's not where he belongs. It's not the way that he was created to live. We will never be happy with the things the world has to offer because we were not made for this world. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might feel, uh, when it comes to happiness, like a fish out of water. You've pursued all of the things the world promises will make you happy. Health and wealth and success and recognition and fame and the list could go on and on. But still you find yourself gasping for something, for the only thing that will truly satisfy you. When all these other things have failed you, maybe you're looking to, to recognize your brokenness and to repent of your failure and in so doing resemble Jesus. If you have felt like you have pursued everything the world has to offer in in terms of happiness, but still find yourself like a fish out of water, I want to offer you the solution, and the solution is Jesus. It doesn't mean a life in Him will always be easy. It doesn't mean a life in Him will always be pleasurable, but it's the only life that we can find happiness in because it's the way that we were meant to live. So this morning, if you're tired of pursuing what this world has to offer in terms of happiness, I want to invite you to instead experience happiness in Christ. During this time, I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. uh, Talk with you about maybe the decision that you need to make to find happiness in Jesus rather than what this world has to offer. Above all, I want to encourage you to not pursue happiness at any cost but to pursue Jesus at any cost. Because when we find Jesus, we find real, lasting, eternal happiness. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. Uh, First of all, grateful, thankful that you have offered us so much, that you provide what we need, uh, you even provide what we want at times. But God, I I know also that we need to come before you a little bit this morning humbled and repentant because there are times where we've pursued what this world has to offer and and define as happiness when in reality it's damaging or unsatisfying. And so God, I pray that you would help us to recognize what happiness is in your kingdom, to recognize our brokenness, to repent of our failures, to resemble you, to find happiness in knowing uh, that our desires here on this earth are not permanent, not lasting, and in the end will help us and lead us feeling empty. But the only happiness that we have is to look forward to the eternity that awaits us when we choose a life in you. So God, I pray that uh, with the tide of this life as it ebbs and flows, that we would not be pushed back and forth on the waves of happiness. Rather, fix our eyes on you in the midst of the storms and the trials and even the good times. 
to recognize that you are our happiness and you are our hope. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, this morning. Amen.